Hello, I'm Rhiannon, and you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, part four of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Uh, When people said that open borders and free trade and U.S. armed forces all over the world would be good for them, and they don't feel that way, right? Because, you know, you can have free trade, but American wages have stayed low. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the world has experienced unprecedented levels of globalisation. And while globalisation has substantially improved the living conditions of populations across the world, it's also created new levels of inequality within and between countries. What's more, globalisation has led to the unprecedented spread of democratic and authoritarian ideals across borders. This prompts some significant questions about the place of democracy in a globalised world. Does globalisation promote or threaten democracy? And what is the relationship between democracy and inequality in the developing world? Too much money is locked in too few hands, basically, and that has economic costs for for progress and progress of society. Today's episode features two guests. First, I chat with Associate Professor Stephen Slaughter from Deakin University about the relationship between globalisation and democracy at a political level and how this comes to shape relationships of power and inequality internationally. After the break, I chat to Estella Kabachwezi, an international human rights activist and lawyer from Uganda, about the influence of globalisation in the developing world and how democracy can be protected and promoted in places like Africa. Welcome to Associate Professor Stephen Slaughter to the Global Questions podcast. We're very excited to have you on today's episode. Thank you for having me. To get us started, could you give us a bit of context about who you are, your professional background, and how you've come to be engaged in the area of international relations? Yes, so I'm an associate professor at Deakin University in Melbourne, and I'm the course director of the Master of International Relations here. So my research focuses mostly upon global governance, particularly the role that the G20 plays in trying to manage globalisation. But I'm also interested in political theory and Republican theory and liberal theory, those kinds of things that academics tend to do. But um, I'm also interested in the cut and thrust of contemporary global governance and diplomacy. So this season we've been focusing on the decline in democracy around the world. Would you be able to give a bit of background on the intersection between inequality, globalisation and democracy? Well, there's some very important interrelations between those issues, obviously. Um, We live in a world that's increasingly globalised where important decisions that that affect us in day-to-day lives are, in fact, global. They're not local. And, of course, COVID-19, the impact that's had has really demonstrated that the globally connected nature of our of our existence. And of course, COVID has also demonstrated some of the inequalities that exist in our world. Uh, you just have to look at the data around vaccination rates and access to vaccines in countries like Australia compared to what's happening in Africa, and you see these very stark divisions between uh, divisions. So I think, and that's just one element, of course, because we say point to climate change, we point to global poverty to see these inequalities, but the big things is that we're, we're interconnected in some ways, but separated in others. And that, that combination of integration and fragmentation is something that's been a really important dynamic in world politics over the last three or four decades. Often when people hear the term globalisation, we think increased communication, flow of ideas, movement and travel, and this is often attributed to the rise of the internet. Do you think that 
you know, this proliferation of the global internet has helped promote democracy? Yeah, this is a really tricky, tricky question. I have to say on, on balance, I think yes. And and the reason I say yes is because it's, it's I mean, there is something egalitarian about the internet. The fact that you can ac- anybody can access the information and know and and go to the WTO website and know what the WTO stands for, know, know what their government policy on something is, that it does reduce bound, boundaries and barriers to people to access information. So there is a sense of where I think, looking back at it, it, it is a positive, positive thing. But of course, that doesn't mean that it's not, it's not subject to risks. And some of these risks have been well known for a long time. Like there is an issue at the moment where people are, in essence, not really believing or feeling like they're a part of a national public. They're sort of falling into these little tribal categories of, I don't know, you could say on one side, you're kind of a woke liberal. The other side, you're this kind of, um, you know, whites, you know, white supremacist type of group. You get these kind of little clusters of people who actually, uh, and this creates a problem for democracy. It creates a problem because of these groups don't talk to each other, they don't interact with each other, and um, it creates a, a very difficult difficult circumstance. And this combines with the problem I noted before around you know, the openness of, of social media and, and the way that it can be used. It can be used by external agents to ferment that naturally occurring groups. I mean, these groups are going to occur. You know, they're going to be little groups occurring and, and it doesn't take too much to for, for, for an authoritarian state to use... Um, uh, bots or some other kind of uh, activity to try to ferment that already existing little subgroups into something bigger than it perhaps is. The other core, I guess, um, stakeholder in this discussion is the state. And, you know, it's sometimes argued that globalisation re- reduces government's control over their domestic affairs. Do you think that globalisation is reducing the power of the state and is this having a positive or negative impact on the spread of democracy? Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's a lot of dynamics to this question. I mean, I, I think um, I think it's definitely, definitely the case that globalisation has made the domestic control of society by a state harder. Like, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, there is a sense around, and that's by, by definition, if, if globalisation is, is understood as the interconnection of countries where things cut across countries, interconnect countries in different ways, then by definition that's going to make domestic control over of society more difficult. And we've seen that with COVID, you know, in the sense that governments have had to rely upon quite, draconian methods, even in country, liberal countries like Australia, to, to, to hold off and minimise the effect of, 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 of COVID. So it makes it more difficult. But I don't, I don't for a moment think, just because it's, it's hard for states to control domestic affairs because of globalisation, that that means the state is powerless. I mean, there was a lot of debate in the 1990s when I was doing my PhD and the, you know, the, 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 kind of, you know, the end of the state thesis was pretty prominent back then. But even at that time, there was a pretty clear sense that the state was going to uh, remain an important actor. I mean, and there's two, you know, two sort of indications I think of that. Firstly, that the it's important to emphasise that globalisation, particularly in its economic form, has been created by the state. The state has been the one that actually created globalisation. Um, and in, a, in just a very simple legal sense, if you think about it, when people move across national boundaries, or uh, your Amazon audit goes across national boundaries, or trade, or whatever goes, it goes because the state grants that thing rights. And if once that that money or that that uh, product or that person has the right to move across boundaries, they can, and that's what that's what globalization actually is: it's a legal process of, of enabling things to cut across boundaries in a way that perhaps in the past they they did not. 
And I think that, you know, there's, in terms of the impact of this for, for democracy is a really, really complicated one. Because I mean, obviously what we've seen is a reaction against globalisation. This movement of things across, across borders provokes people, makes people feel insecure, particularly when those uh, things that are moving across national boundaries are capital that makes factories and the factories are leaving, you know, Geelong or Detroit or whatever uh, industrial part of the world in the last three or four decades has been moving towards China or somewhere else in, in Asia, that creates a resentment towards globalisation that it's taken away my job or my father's job, whatever the case may be. And that after decades, that's had a real impact, in I think, in driving populism and, and nationalism. But also, of course, it's not just about the movement of economics that matters here. It's also there is a, you know, there's a racial element to it around migration as being a sensitive issue for, for many people. Uh, in We saw in 2016 in the US and probably indications in other places as well. So there is a sense that all of this does have a cost. And in many ways, the process of intense globalisation in the 80s and 90s has really started to hit home in the last couple of decades. Uh, it's only the last decade or so where we've seen this resentment, particularly after the global financial crisis, that people have had a, you know, a sick and tired of globalisation. They want to, they just want to have a simpler life. Um, in some ways, the, the benefits of globalisation have become invisible to us. You know, the Amazon orders come in, we're just like, oh, yeah, that's just normal. I can remember before Amazon, so I can remember when it took ages for things to come. But now it's all automatic and quick and we're just normalised. So we've normalised the good things, but the bad things about it have become really entrenched in our mind. It's, it's always the case that the benefits are sort of evenly spread among society, but the costs are worn by some people more than others. And those people are the ones that are, might, have a, might have a reason to, you know, to, to want to resi- resist or disrupt globalisation in some way. In almost every political system, the rich tend to wield disproportionate political power, which creates inequality, which can often threaten democracy. Do you think that globalisation has necessarily empowered the rich and threatened democracy? Uh, look, I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind the type of globalisation that we've seen has been very heavily shaped by the interests of of of, of wealthy people and of of, of, of capitalists. And I think it's very clearly a kind of a, a neoliberal style of globalisation that we've seen over the last couple of decades. That, um, as I've said before, there's been a, there's a disconnect between politic, political liberalism and economic liberalism and. But I think that uh, for me, uh, yeah, the, the centralisation of, of, of wealth is a real big problem. I mean, obviously, some people are really worried about this in terms of justice, that it's unfair to have inequality, and that creates you know, this, this sense that this political system is unfair, it's unjust, because um, you know, people are, some people are benefiting from it more than others. Uh, I mean, there are some people who point to the economic costs of, of inequality, that you've got, a, got an economic order that is so unequal that some people just give up. Um, and you can think about that with regards to, you know, housing in Australia. Um, you can I just understand how younger people can afford housing the way the housing is even before COVID-19 hit Australia. So there's a sense around that, and it creates a problem because if people give up and people disengage, well, that's, you know, the economic system just, it, 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 too much money is locked in too few hands, basically, and that has economic costs for, for progress and progress of society. But there's also to come back to this question of democracy is the political inequality that comes from this. That there are some people who have economic resources that are that are that are absurd and actually create political problems. You know, not just the fact you've got people like who own Facebook or things like that that can exert control or own media or you know whether it's Murdoch or whatever. Those kinds of inequality produce problems around distorting the public sphere by these these very powerful 
interests that are that are obviously um, got mind-boggling boggling amounts of amounts of, of money. But it's pretty clear to me. I think we need to rethink globalization. I don't think the the, the neoliberal project of the last three or four decades can keep on going forever. And obviously, um, COVID is, and climate change are two big impacts on that, and that's going to have an impact for how we think about democracy and globalisation going forward. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, read some of your work or find more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? If you've got a particular question, they can always email me. I'm, my university profile is up there with uh, my surname, uh, with my email address. Uh, I am on Twitter, but I'm not a particularly avid Twitter user but I do have a presence there. so Keep listening because after the break, I chat to Estella Cabachwezi about the intersection between globalisation, inequality and democracy in Africa. The Young Diplomat Society is more than just a podcast. Check out our website to explore the worldly news that we cover. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to get your weekly insight from our reporters in the world this week. Estella, welcome to the Global Questions podcast. We're very excited to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy uh, to be here with you. To get us started, would you be able to give us a bit of context about who you are and your professional background and how you've come to be engaged in the area of international human rights? Okay. Um, my name is Estella Kabachwezi. I am Ugandan. I am a lawyer uh, by profession. Uh, my interest in uh, international human rights uh, dates about uh, 10 years ago. I started off um, with various internships, serving the most vulnerable um, in Uganda. Uh, that sort of cemented uh, my love uh, for pushing for protection and promotion uh, for human rights. I decided to take it a step further and consolidate uh, my education um, I enrolled for a master's program at the Center for Human Rights, at University of Pretoria, South Africa, where I majored in um, LLM on uh, democratization in Africa and human rights. So since then, I have continued to serve in this field and I currently work with a non-governmental organization that's based in Kampala, Uganda, that seeks to protect and promote human rights defenders. Amazing. It's a very impressive professional career. <laughs> this season, uh, we've been focusing on the decline in democracy around the world, and we're very excited to have you on the podcast today to discuss the relationship between globalization, inequality, and democracy in Africa. With this in mind, do you think that globalization has made democracy stronger or weaker across Africa? Um, thank you for that question. I would start with uh, my understanding of what globalization and democracy is. So I'm looking at the definition of globalization as increased interconnectedness and interdependence of uh, world economies uh, that looks at um, increased rise of uh, use of technologies, the internet, cross-border movement of goods, services, um, to mention but a few. And then democracy, on the other hand, as a system uh, of government that has been, it's one of the most contested uh, definitions, but I would align myself with the economist intelligence unit's definition that's a little bit broader 
and the de definition that's set out uh, by Freedom House to include uh, free and fair elections, political participation, respect of civil and civil liberties and political freedoms. That said, uh, globalization creates conditions in which democracy and respect for human rights uh, may flourish. So to an extent, I would like to give arguments that are pro and, and are on the negative side on how globalization has had an effect on democracy in Africa. I'll start with the positive aspect of it. We see because of globalization and infusion of democratic norms and principles of human rights that supports them are on the continent. We see democratic principles begin to trickle down. Rights Watch, you look at Amnesty International, you look at the organization that I work for, for instance, Defend Defenders. We see um, such organizations getting strongly rooted in various African states and pushing for the protection and promotion of human rights, as well as for uh, observe, observation and consolidation of democratic principles. On the other hand, I feel like globalization has weakened democracy to an extent. When you look at um, the leading global economies, you see that Africa, uh, African representation, for instance, at the G20, is very uh, limited. We only have South Africa as um, one economy that represents uh, the, the entire continent, um, a continent that's made up of, of, of uh, about 55 states. Um, our, we do not have the same seat at the table to influence decisions, to influence um, conversations that, again, come down to shape the way uh, African states run, are governed, or are run. So what happens is that we're more on the receiving end as compared to um, the other powerful states that are able to influence such conversations at a global level. Globalisation is often blamed for rising levels of inequality in both developed and the developing worlds. Do you think that globalisation has contributed to inequality in Africa? And if so, do you think that inequality has damaged democracy across Africa? To an extent, because when you look at the UNDP statistics, you see 20% of uh, the richest population controlling 86% uh, of the world uh, resources, while the poorest, which is the bigger percentage, 80%, consuming um, just uh, 14%. If you look at the continent, we see um, it's a classic example of high uh, income inequality rates. The, the distinction between the uneven distribution of income, where majority of the people um, on the continent live um, below poverty lines. So what are the implications of income inequality? Uh, because of that, you will see increasing levels of corruption. And corruption you know, in, in, is, is very di directly linked to, to where you have rising levels of corruption. You're definitely going to have issues with observing principles of democracy. You will have issues of, uh, of bribery. You'll have issues of embezzlement, uh, misuse of public funds. You'll have issues of voter irregularities. You will have issues of um, access to justice, respect for the rule of law, where you have the most, the richer people taking advantage of the system 
um, to influence decisions in their favor. Income inequalities, particularly on, a con- on the continent, has had an adverse effect on, on protecting, I mean, on, on protecting democracy and, and ensuring observation of democratic principles as, as we know them. This brings me to my last question. How do you think democracy can be best protected in Africa? And what are the key things for Africa and for the international community to focus on when thinking about protecting democracy and reducing inequality in Africa? How do I think uh, democracy needs to be protected? Uh, one one way is um, we have a lot of uh, good instruments. We have a lot of good legal standards that have been set. So we need to shift uh, from setting more standards and focus on how we can um, implement um, the standards that have that have been developed uh, over the years. I mentioned the African Charter on Elections, uh, uh, Democracy and Good Governance. There's the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, very strong and solid um, instruments that have also come up with uh, monitoring uh, bodies, for instance, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. So there is need to strengthen to strengthen institutions that exist, uh, monitoring institutions, build their capacities and empower them to monitor uh, relevant issues and keep and, and stay as independent as they can to promote uh, the values um, um, that we know of. Besides the instruments that I've talked about, we also need to have more conversations on the continent. Uh, how, how, how should Africa be included uh, in the conversations uh, that are happening uh, globally, um, how can they have a similar seat on the table to contribute uh, to some of these of these conversations? Because you're not going to have you're not going to 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 front democracy uh, when people on the continent are hungry. Democracy, then, as we know it, as sort of like takes a front seat on 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 many issues that the continent is dealing with. We have a lot of armed conflict. If you look at what's happening in Ethiopia, you look at what's happening in Sudan, we see a lot of poverty. You look at the impact of the pandemic. You look at um, how the states have, res- have responded to curtail, uh, to further curtail rights and consolidate power. So there are key issues that, have, that, that I think need to be addressed first. And through addressing those key issues, then people get an understanding of how to how to fight for democracy, how to push, um, how to push for the measures as as we know them, how to protect uh, the press. So there's a lot that needs to be done. So there is need to protect, consolidate and protect the gains that we have, consolidate uh, the rights, empower people to understand their rights strengthen institutions, tackle um, rising levels of poverty, um, look at a meaningful way to address the sustainable development goals and make sure that nobody is left behind. So it it needs to be a comprehensive approach that tackles all issues that are relevant uh, to democracy. Because until we have a comprehensive approach that looks at all the different issues that affect the people on the continent, then it will be hard uh, for us to attain uh, democracy as we know it. Estella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a really engaging discussion and it's been a pleasure to chat with you.
lastly, if any of our listeners do want to get in touch with you or read some of your work or find out more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? I am active on, uh, on Twitter. I'm also accessible on, on email. You can uh, share that with uh, whoever needs to have um, an in-depth or further conversations uh, with, uh, on what we've talked about. That's all for this week's in-depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, Josh and Hugh's fortnightly recap of news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more content, quizzes and regular news updates. Link is in the episode description. We'll see you next week.